Welcome to Bibliophiles, a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Here on the show, we attempt to find universal ideas and stories all around us, whether old or new, in every medium and in any genre. We hope to participate in a great conversation alongside our favorite authors and artists across the ages about the stuff of life, man's frailty and glory, his muck and his marvel, his faith and his doubt. In this season, the Center for Lit crew goes to the movies. We're looking at what happens when our favorite books are adapted for the big screen, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Over the course of 10 episodes, we'll be discussing the similarities and differences between the two mediums and what distinguishes a successful adaptation from a real stinker. So grab some popcorn and enjoy the show. Well, hello again, and welcome back to Bibliophiles. I am your host, Ian Andrews, joined by, in order, Adam, Missy, Emily, and Megan. How are you guys doing today? Great. Doing well. Thank you. We're about to uncork <laughs> one of the most contentious. I don't know. I mean, you guys can tell me if you found it contentious at the time, but the director that we are going to profile today is a maybe a, f- a fitting successor to Kenneth Branagh in this conversation. Given how much I personally like his adaptations of literary classics, his name is Joe Wright. He is the director of the 2005 release Pride and Prejudice, starring Keira Knightley and Matthew McFadden. And there's a funny thing about that, which is that we always thought it was Matthew McFadden. It is not. <laughs> it is Matthew McFat-Ian. <laughs> it is Matthew McFat-Ian. <laughs> So if you're ever wondering, if you're ever wondering how to pronounce the man's name, there is a glottal stop in there's a Matthew McFadden. <laughs> Matthew McFadden. Um, a wonderful film, I thought. I mean, you guys were all around for the release of this. Do you do you like it or do you not, and why? Wait, did you specify a film? I just thought you said hit the director. Yeah, Pride and Prejudice. Oh, oh yes, Pride okay. and Prejudice. You know, the Kara yeah, yeah. Knightley and. And Matthew McFadden. <laughs> That's right. It's easy, isn't it? It's easy to remember now. You're welcome. You're welcome. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I liked it myself. I know it was it was a contentious bit, but I actually really enjoyed it. And I also really, really loved the original Pride and Prejudice miniseries that BBC did it, right? It was, B- it was BBC. Mm-hmm. Right. This is the source of the contention, right? A, a legendary 13-hour right. miniseries. 13 that had been hours. More or less. 13 hours. It was six hours. It was not six yes. hours. It was longer than that. <laughs> it, it was, was like 500 hours. Was like, it was seven days. It was like one of those Every so often I exaggerate for making a point. elephants, you know. <laughs> well, they, originally when they released it, we didn't have these streaming services. So right. actually it did take weeks and weeks because we had to wait for the next one, children. <laughs> and this may have contributed to its popularity, right? It was a movement. That's Instead right. of something you binge in a weekend. Well, that's not all though. It was also it was also Mr. Darcy, Colin. Yeah, Colin contributed Firth, the legend. Yeah. Colin Firth. But he was one of the things else. that stands out. Correct me if I'm wrong about that original miniseries adaptation is that it was pretty word for word, scene for scene, the novel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was a faithful adaptation. There was a lot of scene for scene stuff. As a matter of fact, so much so that I. That who loved it and loved, loved, loved the 1995 BBC version. When I first saw the Joe Wright version, I thought, going in, there's no way they can do this. I see the running time of this movie, and that is impossible because <laughs> I was so in love with everything about the 1995. And then I watched the Joe Wright version, really enjoyed it, 
I thought a lot of things that we'll probably get into were very skillfully done and effective. I then went back and watched the 1995 one, and the only thing I could think about this movie that I had loved was, whoa, they got to get on with it. This thing's moving way too slow. Mm. It affected your enjoyment of the first yeah. one. See, I, I, I liked them both independently. I mean, I, I thought that the, the lengthy one was delightful and delicious and faithful to the original story. And I thought that the Joe Wright version was much, well, it was much more approachable because you didn't have to commit quite so many hours to watch it. And I thought that he did a lovely job too. It was extremely well acted. And I thought he managed to summarize, to include really significant portions of the story. The plot elements were all present. And where he summarized, he used a lot of cinema symbolism. Can you say that? Sure. In order yeah. to move the plot along without really doing damage or any kind of violence to the story itself. Kind of like what we were talking about with the mini series that was recently out about War and Peace. Was that right. also Joe Wright? No, no, it wasn't. Who did that it one? Is not. Andrew Davies, I think. Andrew yeah. Davies. Yeah, we're, I remember. I remember we're going to discuss that in this. a future episode for sure. Oh, okay. Well, I remember talking about this on a previous podcast recently with you that I appreciated in that particular miniseries the way that huge chunks of Tolstoy's text were summarized in a scene that was very symbolic and representative mm-hmm. of what was going on. You know, it was suggestive. I think specifically in this connection of the of the scene early in the in the Joe Wright Pride and Prejudice where Keira Knightley is out in the fields in the morning taking in the sunrise and you know just enjoying it and there's beautiful music playing and you if you're if you're just watching without thinking about the literary progress that Joe Wright is trying to make it just looks like a beautiful morning scene with an actress in costume setting a kind of a pastoral stage mm-hmm. but but it also really does point up the romantic impulse in Elizabeth Bennet that is going to be the driving thematic philosophical force for her half of the novel. And it's exactly what Missy's talking about in a moment, in a cinematic moment, uh, all kinds of thematic. And I would even say literary progress is being made. I would go one further and say that not only is it emphasizing um, that one scene is emphasizing her romantic impulse, but also it sets the stage for their, their state in society. She walks through the, the farmyard to get to their house and you get to see how close they are to the the way that their land works, which is not the situation of Mr. Bingley, for example. Like, Mr. Bingley's sister, Caroline, would never walk through the muddy field <laughs> the way that Elizabeth does in the very first scene. So we get to see right. her station immediately, which I think is also very efficiently done. Yeah, excellent. I agree, totally agree. And the uh, that's emphasized by the way that mud gets on the, the hems of her gown as she's yeah. doing that, right? She yes. literally walks through the mud with this serene look of this is, uh, you know, this is all my life and I'm really happy about it right. uh, on her face. And of course, that all comes up later in the drawing room scene. It does. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- yeah. I think a similar thing happens in that scene where she's on the tire swing in the barn and she's yeah. spinning Reflecting. on the tire swing. Not a tire, but is it know. a tire? Probably not. Have been <laughs> <in the laughs> early no tires then. Oh, yeah. No tires. <laughs> The swing. She was just on a swing. And anyway, the point of it was she was going in circles on the swing. And as she turned, the camera took in the different seasons and time progressed. I thought that was really artfully done as well. There was a lot of, uh, well, there were a lot of artistic moments in, in the Joe Wright version. 
So as I was reading about this, it's funny that you guys jumped right to the mud on her hems and the, how close they are to the land. This was actually a big decision that was under discussion between the screenwriter and Joe Wright. Now, this is a minor difference between Joe Wright and Kenneth Branagh. Joe Wright doesn't do any of the writing. He's just a director and he works with screenwriters. And the screenwriter on Pride and Prejudice is a woman named Deborah Mogach, M-O-G-G-A-C-H. Yeah. <laughs> and she she did a beautiful job. She was given little to no direction, as it were, from the studio on how to adapt Pride and Prejudice. Hmm. And she wrote something like 10 drafts over two years of the script. Her initial ones were as close to a, to a shot for shot as she could get of the novel. And she backed it off after discussing with Joe Wright the kind of movie he wanted to make. And his impulses were twofold. First of all, he wanted to make it earlier in the 18th century to shy away from the the Regency feel of, of the production like that. I to make the characters like feel more real. Because Regency mm-hmm. is nothing if not artificial. Is that what you mean? Exactly. So that was one of his first adjustments, which she, we, which she liked. And then his second impulse was, instead of doing a shot for shot of this, of this novel, what I'd like to do is use some young person shorthand from our own era in the way that we film these scenes, in the kinds of settings and conversations that we get between the characters while preserving Austin's dialogue so that it's, it's true to the story, but it, our viewers will instinctively understand what's going on. Megan. Yes. For example, the closeness between Elizabeth and her sister Jane, they're under the covers having sleepover talk. It's like immediately communicates their sister bond but in a much more informal, personal, kind of modernized way. I loved that. Even 21st century way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So those were his instincts. Now, here's another point of interest. He had never seen and refused to watch the miniseries. Wow. Because he didn't want to make something that referenced it at all. Mm -hmm. I also like that. I love that. So that's really interesting. One of the points I was going to bring up is this is a doubly responsive work of art. Not only is he adapting a novel, but he's also, at least culturally, responding to a successful adaptation of the novel that came before him. And I just found out, no, he isn't. He isn't responding to it. Hmm. What do you make of that? I think that if he hadn't already seen it when he set out to do it, I think that's a really wise decision. (laughs) I do too. How so, Emily? Because it it allows him to be creative in his own right and not, I mean, that puts him face to face with Austin instead of it being mediated. Right. I would say there's another way to look at that, which is that he shut himself out of a step in a conversation about how to read Austin and how to portray it. It's not that that's a bad thing, but he could have had he, had he been familiar with the 1995 miniseries, he could have been in dialogue with that one as well and added another layer of conversation around Austin's characters and yeah, her that's themes. True too. So here, here's my question, though, and, and I, I'm not picking nits, but isn't he doing that already, consciously or not? Well, because the viewer's experience with Austin, let's say someone who loves, loves everything Jane Austen, they've read the novel, they've seen the miniseries, and now they've seen his film. And the viewer themselves are participating in that conversation as they read Joe Wright and as they read whoever directed the miniseries and as they read Austin. We so he did, are. he did contribute to that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So his decision to not watch the miniseries, even in spite of that, 
it's just in the water around him and his then putting the the setting earlier than the regency era he avoids stereotypes that would maybe allow younger viewers or new viewers to take it more seriously because Mm. with 90s Pride and Prejudice, Jane Austen, Regency adaptations. There's a certain there's a certain stereotype Machine. of the kind of person <laughs> even who watches that. You know, oh, totally. Um, so he's already. I would say that he's already culturally in conversation with it in some ways. He also does um, those of us who are slightly older viewers and more experienced readers a service by not paying attention to the 1995 or even watching it because now, as those of us who have seen them both know something about what two completely independent readers having no knowledge of each other glean from Austin. And it turns out it's similar. It's almost a way to say it's, it's similar. And it, it turns out it's a way to say, here is something here's essential pride and prejudice. Here's essential Jane Austen. Thematically speaking, if two different people who have nothing to do with each other and didn't see each other's work said this thing and this thing, we can rub those two things together and come up with some conclusions. Mm, I like that. This whole conversation is reminding me of when I was doing my master's work work, and I was forbidden. They completely forbade me from going outside of the original text when I was, you know, preparing my classes and things like that. I was not allowed to read what critics had said about a work. I was instead supposed to dig into the work itself and come up with my own interpretive readings. I'm sure with the understanding that after the fact, after Eventually. I had done so, then I would have something to say to contribute to the conversation that they were having there. But if I were to initially dive into the criticism, then I might be influenced in my reading and miss things because I was expecting what the critics had said instead of really listening carefully to the author. And I, hmm. I tend to agree with yeah, that. There's something to it for sure. Well, part of what makes the movie so wonderful is its soundtrack. The score. Oh, it's lovely. A whole generation of young piano players played oh, that I thing did. on yep. repeat. <laughs> I still play on repeat. That's I mean, not with my fingers. Not with your fingers, with Spotify. <laughs> <laughs> there's play and then there's play, if we're honest. <laughs> so the, I, wonder so if that's, I wonder if that's a feature of the era in which uh, Joe Wright was making this movie, 2005. This is, I'm out over my skis on this, but it strikes me that the more recent a movie is, the more central constant music is to a soundtrack. I mean, if you watch a movie from the seventies, maybe even from the eighties, there are songs, there are tunes, there is music, but there's also long periods of silence that you hardly ever get anymore in movies. And I wonder if uh, Joe Wright is in the vanguard of that saying, you know what? The soundtrack is going to stand alone here and be one of the characters in the piece as it were. Well, and that, that goes back to his impulse to make things young and culturally relevant so that his viewers will get on board with Austin. And, um, Austin scholars, actually, if if my internet sources are to be believed, <laughs> Austin, Austin scholars believe with approval that Joe Wright kind of coined a genre when he made this film, mm-hmm. that previous adaptations of works from that era were buttoned up and as indeed the original era would have been, and that Joe Wright said, mm, let's tell a human story about human things. And and there's no there's no need to buy into the ethos of the of the era in which the novel was written in order to tell the story. And, like akin um, to a Shakespeare adaptation. Yeah, right. yeah and this, I mean, really. This uh, one came after Shakespeare in Love, and so it, there was a popular movement in that in that direction. But he kind of gets credit with doing it best. Well, people have been doing. I mean, as we all know, have been doing that with Shakespeare on stage and in film forever and ever and ever. So maybe that's just an application of that. Yeah, up the update. 
Yeah. That's very common to take a, a classic work and set it in a different time period. Right. But I can see not setting a different time period, even just the realism creeping into the Regency era Austin films. I can see Joe Wright creating a ripple effect where that's concerned. The new Emma comes yeah, to mind. Sure. The emphasis is totally on the humanity and the physicality even of the characters. And that seems to be like an extreme iteration of the same idea that Joe totally. Wright is flirting Isn't with. that faithful philosophically and thematically to Austin herself? I mean, isn't that what isn't that the implication of Elizabeth Bennett in her oh, world? Yeah. Just a little bit. I think so. To say all of this that I'm fighting against is Pretense. pretentious. And there's something, obviously, Austin herself didn't know how to say it in, as a 21st century woman, but that's the tendency, right? I think yeah. if that's what Joe Wright is doing, he's doing something of a piece with what Austin was doing in the first place. Yeah, I agree with that. Or at least Wright and, and Mogic together are. Um, I'm sure he was taking some cues from from the script he was handed. That's actually helpful, though, to know that he doesn't write his own scripts, because I think that puts future moments in our conversation that we're going to have today <laughs> in context for me. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I want to get to that. But let's talk casting for a second, because here's an aspect of realism that maybe wasn't paid much attention to. The descriptions of Elizabeth Bennett from Pride and Prejudice, if I remember correctly, don't cast her as a new Helen of Troy. Absolutely yeah. not. <laughs> but we have Kira no, Knightley in the lead here. And I think we could maybe cast her as <laughs> Helen of Troy. <laughs> so that's I mean, been cast was, as Helen of Troy. Yeah, she may, I'm sure she's played her at some point. But that was a topic of conversation. Again, Internet sources are telling me between the screenwriter and the director, it was difficult. The casting choice was really difficult. He wanted someone famous as Lizzie Bennett to draw viewers to the theater but but the idea of having someone that was unapproachably lovely mm -hmm. instead of someone that was, you know, slightly homelier and more approachable was difficult for him to wrap his head around. I actually thought that they ended up doing a good job of kind of roughing, <laughs> roughing her up roughing a little bit. Her up a little. <laughs> <laughs> Can we I, say that on the I air? I was trying to find Here, a rub some of this on your face. <laughs> there it went. You know what I mean, though, that they, they made her, yes, they made yes, her we do. a little more girl next door. Yeah. Right. Like I totally, when I was 14, wore my hair like that. Right. Like I'd had the low bun thing. Like it just was, it, it was the more bangs, attainable. Yeah. Maybe not her face, but <laughs> <laughs> maybe not, maybe not her face. <laughs> yeah. Right. I know we talked about it in our conversation about the l new little women movie, but there's also like a color theme Ooh. for mm. each character in this movie and I think that always works really beautifully when the director thinks of it. I don't it. think I noticed that, Megan. I didn't notice it either. Well, if you think about it, Lizzie is always wearing something in the taupe or the brown, the brown mm -hmm. family. Yeah. And Kira Knightley looks lovely in anything, so it's fine. But again, it emphasizes this common, down-home, earthy, real kind of character that I think is really necessary for her. Whereas Jane is always wearing like blue. something pink or blue like, or wow. yeah, something virginal. lovely and ethereal <laughs> and virginal. Yeah, exactly. But Lizzie is always in a common the way. The, you know? the little, the silly sisters, I call them the silly sisters. Yeah. The silly sisters are always wearing chartreuse. Yeah. Crazy yeah, colors yeah. that don't look particularly good on them or like three patterns at once. Yeah. Like they're, they're always wearing something silly. Mm -hmm. Wow, I didn't notice that. So costuming also is is participating thematically. Helped with the casting choice, I think. Yeah. Does the fact that 
that Matthew McFadden has a terrible, terrible haircut and hairdo oh, the hair. entire time. Is that <laughs> thematically significant? I could Why hardly look at it. I'm distracted no, by it. Is. So, so one of the things that, bad you that Wright considered when casting Darcy is, well, we've got someone famous for Elizabeth. And I don't, one thing that he did respond to in the miniseries, which he hadn't seen, but how could you possibly get called up? And this, this is his first movie, by the way. This is his directorial really? is debut. True? Oh my for, yes. for a feature length. Yes. Whoa. Yes. What a first home film. So for Lord. him to be invited to do this, he's been alive in the world and knows who Colin Firth is. <laughs> right. And so he's like, Has oh, probably seen no. memes of Colin who Firth am I gonna cast? Right, exactly. Yeah. Who am I going to cast as Darcy? And so it gave him an excuse, more or less, having handled the star appeal of the movie with Keira Knightley's casting, it gave him an excuse to go find someone who was, from his perspective, a big hunk of a man, like a big, tall, broad well, kind I of remember, guy whose beauty was not the point of his character. I actually watched an interview about this. I think they specifically wanted Darcy to be um, manly in like the old fashioned sense of the word, like um, like lumberjacky like big and strong yeah. like gruff maybe um, even kind of a lout a little loudish yeah like he's huge he's a, he's a giant person <laughs> nope yeah too far Ian. <laughs> I think so too i was really rolling over don't thinking, you I say loud that's what i would don't say call him don't you say that about because, darcy <laughs> well right because i think the casting choice was so good because he looks right he looks manly and you know lumberjacky but he's got a really soft voice and he's got very like sensitive eyes. Very and expressive he's got, like, eyes. That's totally true. He's very expressive. And so it works for the character that's basically supposed to communicate the depth of feeling without ever saying anything. It's supposed to be all in his face, all in his eyes. And I think he did a great job. It was great casting. Well, mm -hmm. it's I mean, it's one of the things that he was not known outside the UK until this movie came out. So it definitely started his career. And he's gone on to all sorts of heights since then. Can't make a tomlet without breaking a cracking a couple Greggs. <laughs> can't make a tomlet without cracking some Greggs. Oh, he, as a character in a film, he's or as in a TV show that we watched, he says that to one of his subordinates. They've been caught oh. doing, or they haven't been caught yet, but there's a chance of them getting caught having broken the law, and he's going to throw his young subordinate under the bus. Subordinate's <laughs> name Greg, his name Tom, and he looks oh, at him with total seriousness, and he says, "You can't make a tomlet without breaking some Greggs." <laughs> And it's funny. It's truly deeply funny stuff. So he's got range too as an actor. He's range, I tell range. you. Well, we can talk about range today too. We will. Yeah. We certainly will. Yeah. Okay, so the reason I bring up casting is because there are some funny, there's some funny casting details that I've uncovered. For example, the casting of Rosamund Pike was a little iffy for a couple of reasons. Number one, he and Pike met on the set of this movie and were married for a minute before they oh. were divorced Who? later. He and Joe, Joe Wright. Wright. Matthew McFadden? No, Joe Wright. Oh, no. And Matthew McFadden has been true to Keely Hawes. like that cheating. Okay. So there's that. But then also the casting choice was difficult because even though she was perfect for Jane, she had broken up recently with her boyfriend who was already cast as Bingley. Oh, no. Oh, no. Really? Already yeah. cast as her love interest in the know movie? That. Yep. Isn't that great? I mean, I love well, that. they did great acting then. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's yeah, so can you imagine? Awkward. Can you imagine acting opposite your ex while being directed by a guy that you're beginning a romantic relationship with? <laughs> oh, my gosh. She probably broke out in hives. The moment that movie was over. <laughs> <That's> so funny. <laughs> oh, that whole thing is great. I just love it. Uh, whew. 
Okay, so the last thing I wanted to bring up about this particular movie before we move on to other times Joe Wright has done this again is the soundtrack. But you already mentioned that earlier. Dario Marinelli just did some beautiful, beautiful things for this. And what I remember most is the scene you talked about, Dad, with the tune is actually called Dawn. I've been listening to it for years mm-hmm, and it's beautiful. playing over her. Best walking study the, music ever. Oh, yeah. Or what about Lizzie on top of the world when yep. she's standing on that cliff's oh. edge overlooking the moors out there? Oh, it's amazing. My goodness. So a visually stunning treat of a movie that's actually pretty faithful to the novel and plays nice with other adaptations, whether intentionally or not. Would recommend. Is that because, does the fact that it plays nice with other adaptations, a, a, a statement that Austin lends herself better to adaptation than maybe other writers? That's a really good question. One of the things you can say as a high school lit teacher of Pride and Prejudice is that it's broad. <laughs> That's true. It's not subtle. Pride and Prejudice. Do you think people do it because it's easier to adapt or because there's such interest in it and staying power? Oh, no, because I don't think they... are very universal. The latter, for sure. Yeah. I don't think they do it because it's easy to adapt. I wonder if that... If, if the fact that adaptations play nice with each other testifies to the fact that it's pretty straightforward. It's saying one thing, obviously. Right. I see what you mean. Hmm. Yeah. It's also, if I remember correctly, it's been some years since I've read Pride and Prejudice, but the dialogue is really there for you, ready for mm-hmm. the taking. The jokes are fresh. Oh, yeah. They don't really age. It's a stone masterpiece. I just don't think it's particularly subtle, that's all. Right. Yeah. No, I don't. Think so <laughs> well, that wasn't her goal. Right. Her goal was comedy. She might not have been your, I mean, you might not have been her goal. I don't know. What does that mean? I love that book. Thick candy oh, shell. Great book. You're the one with a candy shell on it. I love that book. <laughs> that was great. Well, so Joe Wright, um, a gift to the world in 2005 with his directorial debut, does it again with the release of Anna Karenina, which was, well, I don't know. What do you think? As good or better? 2012. Is that the one with where it starts and and the there's a a thing he does that makes it clear that the whole thing's happening on a stage, like yes. a revolving stage? Yeah. Yes. So that's one of the major talking points of this Most whole thing. Most of it takes place on a stage, actually. It's very cool. It turns out all of the filming I found out was done on a soundstage. There were no there wasn't exterior shots and stuff. Even the even in the fields? That's what I wonder too, but that's what they said is that it was shot on a soundstage. Hmm. Kira Knightley said it was the hardest movie that she's ever made. She said it was the most difficult acting she's ever done. I can imagine. Because it was like, she said it was like ballet. Because of the production or because of the... the... Because of the production, because of the the directorial choices, because of the choreography. It is actually filmed and staged like a performance on stage. Yeah, it's very theatrical in its presentation. And sometimes when they do that kind of theatrical presentation, it doesn't work because being in the theater is part of what makes a theatrical drama so wonderful, you know, and to just film something like that and watch it on your TV, it kind of loses something in translation, but it did not with Joe Wright's version of Anna Karina. It added something to it. Yeah, I think you're right. Talk about condensing He's taking, oh, let's see, Pride and Prejudice is what, 250 pages, 300 pages. Well, now he's taking like a, a 900,000 page novel and condensing it into <laughs> Is it 900,000, Emily? What do you think maybe it's more like 900? I meant 900 dash 
or 1,000. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> not 900,000. Fair enough. I did but actually mean 13 hours, so I guess that's on me. Part of what happens is he spends so much time focusing on Anna's story, which it's named Anna Karenina. You kind of have to do it. But like he loses a lot of the meat of the story, which is Levin and Kitty's romantic so relationship. Not so too. But and and I do think that there's some problematic issues with that, but he makes up for that thematically with this decision to to stage it in the theater, right? He it's a, again, it's the symbolic representation, the artistic decision to have a discussion that's constantly going on underneath the surface of the plot about this artificial stage yeah, and then the and feel not. like when he when Levin flings open the doors of the theater and walks out into the snow like that's the most glorious moment of the movie I think Beautiful. what do you mean when you say he makes up for a, a light treatment of Levin and Kitty with this theatrical uh, directorial decision making how does that make up for it well, Levin and Kitty's story is a counterpoint to Anna's in that it's having a conversation about true love, which is natural and it's based in reality and telling the truth and being honest, which sometimes means being honest about how ugly you are. And so he had like he doesn't really get to have that conversation with the actual details of the relationship, right? Like we don't see the point where Kitty goes off and tries to be perfect in her good works, the spa or whatever it is that she goes with her family. But but we do get to see this image of Levin being in the earth. Like he's outside of the stage. He's in the grass. He's mowing with the peasants. Like and that kind of is where he has that conversation instead. Yeah. I just think as we, cause we rewatched it in preparation to talk about it today. And what I remembered having seen the movie a while back was the opening scene, which is it all takes place in one room and it's clear that it's one room. It's an old theater. And I thought, Oh, what a, what a cool device that he's using to make this happen. The dancing and the choreography was so spectacular. And then the doors open up and Levin walks out into the world. And then I assumed that, that was kind of mm-hmm. it. I'd forgotten that that theater plays a role as almost a character in the story for the entire film. And it really does. I mean, there's some moments that stick out. For example, when Levin, Levin's initial proposal is refused, he leaves the restaurant to go out into the street and, and walk away despondent. And in order to do that, to go back out from all of the posturing and the posing that deems him not good enough for this whole scenario and to get back to real life, he ascends into the the bowels of the theater above the stage, which is really interesting. He's going from high society down into the gutter, out into the street. And that is but placed actually, visually. But he's transcending it. Yeah, he's, he's placed mm-hmm. above all of the, well, what you begin to see over the course of the story is the muck of polite mm-hmm. society, where people are brutal and vicious and uncaring. That's so cool. It's or down even... to go up like Dante. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's very, very much so. The opposite of that is I was thinking of there's a moment where Anna and Vronsky are making out in a field and they're out in nature, which is supposed to be Levin's territory. And it's beautiful and floral and um, it has all of the natural qualities, which are supposed to be positive. But Anna looks up at the trees and the romantic moment is kind of over. She looks up and she says, but I'm damned, like looking up. So there's she's honest 
she's in the place of truth and reality but she knows like she looks up she looks at the sky and sees that she's exposed and what she is is now like seen by the heavens because it's out in that natural scene i think so yeah because mm. her her love belongs in the theater it's something artificial and manufactured but when she take goes public with it and she decides to live that way. There's a moment where she's out in reality. So the so the the theater then is so far based on these comments is artifice and pretense and and reality lies above it, below it, outside it. And so it's a commentary on the whole world of Anna Karenina that it happens inside a theater. I think so too. Yeah, and I think it's also constructed. That's a huge yeah, yeah. part of it. There you go. There are multiple times when the camera angles actually show you the set pieces and you can see that they're this thin and made of cardboard, you know? So it's it's a comment about the world of high society in this particular period of time and how it's a construction of humanity and not a very good one at that. I think it's so in keeping with Tolstoy's idea. If we're, if we're thinking about a literary adaptation, the author is so, so present in the mind of the director, we hope. And Tolstoy is always portraying the life of the salon of like the high society in Russia as a, a pageant. It's a pageant. It's a play. Everyone's acting and there are written rules to it. It's like a dance. And all of those elements are emphasized so much by this particular set choice. I think it was a really, it was an apt tool. There was, you, Megan, you mentioned ballet and they actually do in the opening scenes move in ballet choreography and dances in particular with the arm movements they they move their arms over their heads and that is actually echoed later in the story when kitty bathes levin's brother when he thought like his brother brings the prostitute into their home and levin is so apologetic and tells kitty that she won't see her but kitty instead goes and bathes the wounds of his brother and like takes care of him and nurses him back to health they they move his arm in that way, in that same movement, which is, I wonder what that says, if, mm. the artif if it's entirely artifice or if... There like, are elements artifice of humanity you can't, you can't shake. Or Yeah, or I don't know. There's just... I don't know what that is. Or that human life is artistic. Yeah. I don't know. I, yeah. I was wondering, as you were talking about this, if the the contrast is between reality and pretense or if it's things natural and unnatural mm. Mm -hmm. Mm. is it because pretense is a theme and certainly present there. But I also remember when I read Anna Karenina, the Tolstoy's ability to portray the unnatural relationship that grows between Anna and her lover. Vronsky. Yeah. Anna and Vronsky and the, the very natural love that eventually grows between Kitty and Levin. And that ends up in a way it's almost like a chivalric it's, it's almost like a nod to Dante's chivalric love idea that eventually his relationship with Kitty, that romantic love opens his heart to a divine love. Yeah. For, in Levin's case, for sure. it ends up being like a doorway into relationship with God. Yeah, yeah. The other ends up becoming a different kind of doorway, a doorway into a true hell, as you mentioned. He portrays in that one scene and, you know, it ends in, in her literal death. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I they in that same scene where they're doing where Kitty is bathing his brother and it looks like ballet. The prostitute is holding the brother like a pieta 
So I wonder if it's actually a comment, not so much on artifice, but on the true roots of beauty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Divine, divine love. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. That is interesting. I also, when I watch it the first time, and I haven't watched this in, in many years, but there was it's something about go around. Yeah, I want it's this conversation is making me want to go watch it again. You were talking about the insubstantial nature of the set. The set being, you can see that it's thin. The walls are thin, and things aren't the different artificial. scenes. It, not just artificial, but not separated as much as they seem that they are. And I remember coming away from it feeling like not only was that an artifice, but also it was like a. Uh, it, it emphasized the the tissue type nature of the world around us as compared to what's beyond it, you know? And I think that Tolstoy is really doing that in his story. He's wanting to make things that are eternal and significant come to the surface and make the things that we as human beings get really caught up in that ensnare us and maybe keep us from seeing into the eternal to make them look thin in a way insubstantial i wonder if i don't know if that was in joe wright's mind as he was designing the set and you know staging it the way that he did but something about that the little it almost looked like a beehive those little rooms that were so tiny and the walls are so thin and you know what i mean and interconnected i don't know i wonder what he was doing with that I don't know either, but along those same lines, as things get worse and worse for Anna with her drug addiction and mental instability and and just guilt torturing her, more and more of her fights with her lover, Vronsky, begin to be depicted by the camera with the use of mirrors to where you're not actually looking at either one of the characters. You're not seeing either of the actors. You're only seeing their faces from across the room at a strange angle in a mirror and they're distorted and I think that has a lot to say also. I mean, I think he's using that element to make a point about the story and about the characters. The actions they've undertaken are distorting them to themselves and to one another. Yeah. They can't see each other clearly anymore. Wonderful. I was thinking about Anna Karenina and War and Peace and the Olive Tolstoy and the difficulty that it is to take to condense all of that stuff and all the stuff that goes on in a novel like Tolstoy's that is internal monologue for pages and pages and pages. (laughs) How in the world do you do it? And that idea of the, of seeing the characters, their reflection in a mirror that's off center, that's uh, at an oblique angle or something like that, just encapsulates Mm -hmm. so much of what's going on in Anna's mind for giant chunks of that. Without having to say any of it. I mean, it's the same thing he does in Pride and Prejudice. It's short visual shorthand for... Yeah, you have to use the art of, of the medium you're working in. Right. And it's not that that it's the same. It's not the same because you're not going into the detail and you don't hear Anna's words of internal monologue or, or better yet, Tolstoy's words describing Anna's thoughts, which is where the real punch happens, I think. I but too. you get something else that is thematically similar, right? It's shooting for the same thing. It's saying this is a a distorting, destructive, unnatural, artificial effect that this is having on these guys. Cool. You know, that makes me, that makes me want to ask that, um, because you're right. I had never thought about that, but we're, I'm reading war and peace. I haven't read Anna Karenina. I want to, but in war and peace, his editorializing, it's not just that his dialogue is great, which it is, but he, then he gets done with a conversation and then tells you 
how it seemed to both of the people who were having the conversation and how they seemed to onlookers. And <laughs> that's where and he's the best that ever was. He does all the interpretation and, and yep. you're right. That's where he's best. And so in some senses, an adapter has the hardest possible job. I with agree. Tolstoy. I agree. Because essentially what we're getting is Joe Wright instead of Tolstoy. Yep. But the other thing it does though is, and maybe this is about the medium of film. It does erase a distance between the reader and the story. And you, you can argue all day about how the, the reader's own imagination is just as powerful, but it's different. The effect is different. Watching Anna, watching Kira Knightley as Anna implode is viscerally painful and difficult. And I'm sure that Tolstoy could have made me feel something similar and will when he I read will. it. <laughs> right? Have you never read And it? he'll do it with words and he'll do it, he'll do it by describing her and describing her aspect. Will. But being able to sit and experience that visually was... A unique. Well, I think you said it right. It's uniquely visceral in in a way that only a visual medium can be. Well, what he had to do is imply what was going on in their minds through little ticks and tricks on the screen, like the like the mirror that Ian just talked Mm -hmm. about. That's that's a great example of that. Or or like Jude Law's whole perfect being, whom I love. He was so good in that movie. <laughs> You've got movie. such a man crush. I do. I have a huge man crush on Jude Law, Sumi. But I, he was so good. He was so good as Karenin in that film. It, it was so restrained and so hurt and wounded. And the way that he comported himself, I fancy, did exactly what you're talking about with the mirrors. It, it bottled up a ton of internal dialogue from the novel and put it on, on Jude Law's face. Also, just have to say, Matthew McFadden as Steva is amazing. Wasn't he great? <laughs> Do you guys remember enough of it to, to remember no, Matthew McFadden in that role? Who's, who's Steva? Her brother. Anna's, Anna's brother. brother. Oh, With his gotcha. hair sticking straight up off the top oh, yeah. of his head. Mm-hmm. And his eyes are always completely wide. He's going. <laughs> <laughs> I remember he her relationship with her brother fantastic. in the story. But I don't remember that element of the movie. He's great. It's great. He was Dickens' character. Good. Yeah. So Joe it's, Wright a Dickens, has... it's a Dickensian character. Come yeah. for sure. <laughs> Joe Wright has a thing for recasting the same people. Yeah. I, we're running out of time, but I, I'd love to gloss over the rest of his career shortly if we can. Is that okay? Please do. Well, I mean, so he does a great job with Pride and Prejudice. He does a great job with Anna Karenina. Even though the story is the worst, he does a great job with Kira Knightley again. So now it's getting weird in atonement. <laughs> and then recently we find out that Joe Wright is going to do Cyrano. And <laughs> it's exciting. I like other Joe Wright movies are great. The Darkest Hour was great. The Darkest I was Hour. So Peter Dinklage Dinklage is great. Yeah. Peter Dinklage is great. I love, love we Peter love Dinklage. He's our favorite. And then we watched it. <laughs> Oh, my Lord, you guys. <laughs> what happened? And, well, first of all, what happened? Actually, we know <laughs> what happened. We figured it out. You know how you said, Ian, that Joe Wright doesn't write his own movies? He just directs them? Uh... Well, Peter Dinklage's wife wrote the script for Cyrano, which Peter Dinklage was going to star in. And it seemed like no one had the heart to tell her that it was so, so bad. Well, and it was they a just great had to idea. do it because Peter Dinklage loves his wife and Joe Wright and Peter Dinklage are tight. And it was like, it, well, that's, I, horrible. that's the only possible interpretation I can give it. That's <laughs> I, positive. I, I don't even so think she's so overstating. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even think she's overstating it. I haven't seen it. 
The, I but Ian, to see we it. were watching it. Ian and Emily and I were watching it together, and Ian stood up in the middle of the movie and left because he could not. Bear. <laughs> I couldn't do he it. He hated it so really? much. <laughs> Terrible. You walked out on the film. Yeah, I well, came how many back. Times have you done Dinklage. I Not just want to be clear that we thought it's a great idea. It's a great idea, right? It should have worked. Peter, well, yeah, Peter Say, Dinklage talk should about that, absolutely. Emily. Well, Peter Dinklage absolutely should be playing the role of Cyrano. It but, makes complete yeah. sense. Well, thematically, the idea of Cyrano de Bergerac, for those of you listeners who don't know, is that there's a man who has, he feels disfigured by his ugliness. It's and his in nose, the, the typical, right. Yeah. In the, the traditional version, it's he's got a gigantic nose, a huge schnoz, and he's self-conscious about it. And he thinks that it makes him repulsive. And in fact, maybe maybe it does. I mean, he really is so, so ugly in this in this interpretation. And he's in love with this girl, but he thinks that she's not going to love him the way that he is, even though they're actually friends, because he's so, so ugly. And so handsome soldier comes along who looks right, but is empty headed. And Cyrano decides to put his own brilliant words into beautiful man therefore his love will you know love his mind somehow it's super weird it's a little twisty but what they did in the peter dinklage version is very very french French. is they said okay maybe this we're going to change the disfigurement a little bit and instead of give him a nose problem he'll just be really really short a good concept (laughs) right (laughs) what a setup okay megan deliver the coup de gras well, I don't know if I can deliver the coup de grace because mostly I'm just speechless at how it missed. I mean, how could it miss? It's Peter Dinklage. Well, He's an excellent here's one of actor. the problems. Here's one of the problems, and I'm I'm competent and qualified to give this particular yes, blow. please. They decided to make it a musical, and there was not a singable <laughs> tune in the piece. Because it was a musical. Oh. They had the National write the music. They had Matt uh, Berenger of the National. Which it's right, just the, not the, the right tone. I didn't there was think. one. There was no. one song in the whole thing as Cyrano and his men are preparing for a, a suicide mission of a battle, and the song was performed by Glenn Hansard, and oh, name of the other guy. It'll come to me. Uh, two folk musicians, and since mm-hmm. the National is a folk band, it made perfect yeah, sense what, for worked. folk musicians to sing it, and that one worked pretty well. And every other song in the whole piece was unsingably destructively terrible. (laughs) (laughs) So you cannot take it seriously. Yeah. They mixed up their genres. Everyone's dressed in period garb and yet they're dancing and singing in the streets as if it's, as if it's like a Broadway show. And then the music is folksy, the national. Well, I, I must None of that works together. It was awful full stop. It sounds like it Mystery Science Theater 3000 material. Now, what I will say is there were some beautiful... There were some beautiful visuals. I didn't. It think was that actually the, nominated for a couple of Academy Awards. Wasn't. It's all an inside job. <laughs> <laughs> it's really bad. I don't. I don't know. I, oh, I do. You haven't seen it. <laughs> Just watch it. We had a, such a violent. I think our violence of reaction is down to the fact that we were really we wanted excited it to be about so it. So hopeful. Just but disappointed. I would love to talk about why. Like what happened? Why isn't it as good as his other work? Well, Ian already said the music detracted, yeah, right? The music was terrible. Well, that's certainly part of it. The script was terrible. The script was bad. The music was bad. So you think that the visuals are up to his, artistically, and even with symbolically, was it up to his usual standards? Yeah, I actually thought so. I thought, yeah, can I, I thought that something. Go ahead, Dad. Is it possible? Have it, has anyone ever seen a great adaptation of the Cyrano de Bergerac yes. story? Roxanne. No, it's, so, it's well, source Roxanne text. Roxanne was amazing. 
I would say that was Roxanne it? was great. Roxanne was I thought, great. <laughs> Steve Martin. Is that Steve Martin? Roxanne, go watch it. Yeah. Okay, so they turned it into a Saturday Night Live style comedy. And right. that worked. And maybe that's why it worked. Also, Steve Martin is an absolute genius. He's a force to be reckoned with. So is with. Peter Dinklage, though. That guy hey, is big really nose. good. Big nose, I give you this and you give me I give you big this nose. and all you can come up with is big nose. Big nose. Mm-hmm. That's pretty that, good. You might be onto something, Dad, because Peter Dinklage, what he has going for him is he's a serious, dramatic actor and he's moving and riveting and takes himself very seriously because that's the role that he plays. And there was no hint of irony or humor in his interpretation of this. And yet all the other parts. So you're only, the only way to save this movie was to laugh right. and you weren't allowed to do that. I, yeah. That's I well wonder if Cyrano isn't the, the source text itself isn't kind of a French blackish sort of comedy. I think it is supposed to be. I think maybe they, they misidentified the genre. Is it, it's the, the original idea is beautiful, ugly, right? Yeah. But I mean, his whole goal is to get some beautiful guy to woo his girl. That's but, the yeah, self-def- but he's got to come around That's the corner and realize and futility right there. He's got to come around the corner and realize <laughs> beautiful, ugly. Amen. The other thing that they did that may have hurt the presentation a little bit was that they tweaked that part of the story, and what he is doing actually is reluctantly because Roxanne asks him to, aiding this guy she is apparently head over heels in love with in giving her what she needs to be happy which he already knows better than that guy is for her lover to be intelligent. So she is, she is a swooning ninny who's fallen for a pretty face. This is true to the text. Absolutely. She's a swooning ninny. And, and he is, he is out of the goodness of his heart sort of falling on his own sword. You know, that that sounds like a, that sounds like a hallway farce. I think trying to do that (laughs) or a Hallmark movie, trying to do that straight. I, I just, I don't know if that could ever succeed. I do think that, yeah, I think, Megan, you're on to something because her performance wasn't, com- di- didn't match the compellingness of his. So the, it wasn't worth it in the end. It didn't feel worth it. Mm-mm. No, you actually caught yourself from the beginning. Well, if you were me, I caught myself from the beginning thinking, her? <laughs> really? Yeah. And you just, you lost at that point. It's nothing against that actress. She was lovely. I'm sure she was talented. She had nothing to work well, with. and I think that's the source text. Like, I think that that's yeah. actually the way it is. Other, because she has to be shallow enough to choose to fall for the it. beautiful soldier yep. over the intelligent man. Right. <laughs> I think it's a farce. And I, I don't know. Text. I didn't see Gerard Depardieu, who's got the famous version. Did anybody see it? No, I never did. No, no I haven't seen I'd it. Like All I know then. is I wouldn't want to see a slapstick version of War and Peace or Anna nope. <laughs> Right. But a slapstick version of Cyrano goes just fine. It, it was great. Yeah. See, Roxanne, everyone. Roxanne. Okay. Well, <laughs> know, that's all I can think of. <laughs> so, okay. So, gentle listeners, thank you for joining us on this on this journey. This is such fun, and we can't wait to do it again. Here's what I will say in closing. Go watch you some Joe Wright films, if you haven't already. The man is great. Maybe stay away from Cyrano. Or watch it. Just for the lols. <laughs> Maybe someone will disagree yeah, just- with us. Mystery Science Theater. It. If you do disagree, I will fight you. Okay. <laughs> so, Megan Andrews, everyone, with the strong opinions. Read if you like Cyrano, you're wrong. <laughs> if you were wondering if I was an Andrews, now wonder no longer. I fit right in, everyone. Oh my goodness. <laughs> well, thank you all for your insights as usual, and until we meet again, my friends, happy, happy reading. Happy, happy reading. reading. Happy reading.
Thank you for listening to Bibliophiles. We hope you'll stop by our private Facebook group for the podcast or wherever you follow us on the web to let us know what you think. Like Ian let drop already, next week we'll be discussing Andrew Davies' War and Peace as an example of the television version of the novel, the limited series. Until then, happy reading, everyone.